Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a promo for The Astrolic Explains. A podcast where I, Chris, a non-scientist, ask astronomy questions. And I, Alfredo, as the astroholic, try my best to answer them. So, Doctor, what are black holes? Why is Pluto not a planet? What's up with the sun's poles? Why does Jupiter want us dead? Is Betelgeuse going supernova? How is the universe going to end? Can we hitch a ride on an asteroid? Is there Chris, life- this is a 30 second promo. You can find The Astroholic Explains on all your favorite apps or follow at The Astroholic on all social media. Hello, a pretty strong content warning this week. My guest, Michael, grew up in the Catholic community in Boston, Massachusetts. And if you've seen the movie Spotlight, it's probably already starting to ring some bells. Today's story centres on the physical and emotional abuse of a young gay man at the hands of several Catholic priests. There's also a brief mention of thoughts of suicide. There's nothing too graphic in the episode, but this is still some pretty heavy material. So if any of this is going to be triggering or too uncomfortable for you, then you're best off sitting this one out. Come back next week and I'll make sure there's a couple of extra knob gags in there just for you. If anything in this episode does resonate with you, or you yourself are the survivor of any kind of abusive relationship, there are links in the show notes to organisations that are there to listen and to help without judgement. And I strongly urge you to get in touch with them if you need to. No one should go through this kind of thing alone. This is Probably True, stories of queer life and even queerer sex. Please be aware that this podcast contains strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them. I was an 80s boy. (laughs) Uh, I was a teenager in the 80s, so the 80s was sort of an interesting time for me. I probably didn't really realize I was gay until, strangely enough, I was more attracted to groups that were sort of androgynous. I mean, I would look at Duran Duran and for some reason I loved the crazy costumes and wearing makeup and I was fascinated by Boy George. I knew I was different. I I guess I couldn't put it into words. I really didn't know what the word gay was. I mean, it wasn't something that people talked about too much back then. There were no role models as we have so many today. I mean, you can go down from Elton John to Anderson Cooper and uh, and the list, you know, just Ricky Martin and the, the list goes on. So there was no role models. So how does one understand what it is to be different or be gay? How do you be? And you also have the other angle of it is that you have a church who's telling you that is wrong. My parents were very religious. I remember, you know, religious pictures all over the walls. And my mother even had a little plastic Jesus that would glow in the dark at night. So God knows if that was radioactive, but it was extra holy. Exactly. Extra, extra holy. Yes. Uh, and it was funny because looking at the statue growing at night, you sort of had Jesus in every aspect of your life. My mother would be sitting in the evening doing her rosary beads, uh, reading the Bible. We would never miss church. And we were also, I guess you could say, forced to participate in church activities like being an altar boy. 
going to, they called it catechism, which was a Saturday school. It was Bible school or, you know, church school or whatever you want to call it. So I was an altar boy. You know, we couldn't miss any of the special holiday masses like uh, Midnight Mass or Lent. So religion was a very big part of my life from baptism to confirmation to communion. I sort of believed that I was different. I believed I was a mutation, a natural mutation or an abomination. And I felt I was sort of this, I belonged to the sort of gay leper colony. Like I didn't belong in the sense of the straight world. Growing up was difficult because I had the church who was telling me I was, you know, going to hell. And then I had my own feelings of my attraction for men. So I realized it was, you know, over the years I was, I was okay. And I was, I was normal. But back then I had a lot of anxiety because you grew up with this sense of fear. So I was a very anxious child. I vibrated at a high energy because I was always afraid somebody would find out. I mean, I played football just to prove that I wasn't gay. I think I was in my early teens when I started watching certain programs on television and finding myself attracted to different actors on television or even the commercials. You'd have Irish Spring and the guy is showering in the shower or through the loom underwear. So I knew that there was an attraction for men and not an attraction for women, but I played the role like everybody else did. You know, you tried to kiss the girl sort of to show your machismo and I played football and, and I was miserable. So I would prefer to have grown vegetables in the garden, something that was not considered as masculine as sports or changing the oil in the car. And did playing the sports and things, did that help? Did you, did it make you in yourself feel any more kind of macho and like you were doing it right? God, I had no, I had no clue what I was doing <laughs> because I remember I was afraid to call the sort of popular jock in the high school and talk to him and ask him to explain the game. I mean, I didn't want to run the wrong way and give a point to the other team. So I actually met with this guy, David, who actually was nice enough to give me sort of a tutorial on, on the game, sort of this quick synopsis. So I played one season, I was miserable, and I basically did it for my father. I was sort of, it was a sense of wanting to matter, wanting to be seen by him. I think all children want to be seen by their parents. You want to bring your homework home and that they see that you did well um, or riding your bicycle for the first time. So I wanted to be seen by my father, but we sort of had this, it was sort of like a quiet river of uncomfortableness between us. I think it was because he might've suspected that made me feel uncomfortable around him. And he knew that I was different because I wasn't crazy about watching sports on television. So there was sort of an uncomfortableness between us. We weren't very close. And I think that sort of leads up to what happened when I met the priest. He sort of was the father figure that I didn't have from the very beginning. And how old were you when you met the priest? I was 17 years old. And again, I was, I was older and, and I get a lot of questions. You were 17 years old. How could you let him abuse you? But I tell people that we were in the country uh, back in the 80s and I was not, I mean, I knew nothing about other countries and diversity and, you know, there wasn't like a really well-known art museum here so you could learn culture. And um, so I was very limited to sort of the, I hate to say redneck, but sort of uncultured community and probably a lot of bigotry and racism in the community as well. This priest gave me a lot of attention. I mean, he really, I was introduced to him by my friend, uh, Peter, who I, I call in the book. He wined and dined me and he infiltrated himself into the family. And that's sort of what priests do. And there's a word called grooming, where they groom the child or the young adult. And in a way, I felt comfortable with him. So when the first time it happened, in the privacy of his rectory, I was sort of shocked. I didn't know what to do because do I, can I tell my parents? If I tell my parents, they're going to find out maybe that I'm gay. 
will the community banish me from the kingdom? I mean, will they actually go after my parents and say, you have a, you have a sick, distorted kid? And so you had the community, you had the, my parents, you had the, I didn't want to anger the priest because I was taught that you respect, you respect a priest no matter what. And then you also had the, I had fear of God. I feared God a lot. And that was sort of drilled into my head from a from childhood. You know, your parents are telling you that God can see everything you're doing. So even picking your nose, you're afraid that God may see you. So, you know, you already had that element of fear as a child. And so you here you are as a teenager still thinking that, you know, you're displeasing God and you're displeasing the priest and you're going to displease your parents and the community is going to be um, upset with you for being sort of this mutation, this, this diabolical person in the neighborhood. My parents loved the priest. He was very charismatic. As a matter of fact, he was so different than any priest that arrived at this church. He would drink scotch and he would tell, you know, he could tell jokes, dirty jokes. I mean, people loved him. He would, he was, he would always stand at the exit of the church after mass and joke with the best of them. And he would go to people's homes. He would come to my parents and drink scotch and he'd wear a Speedo bathing suit by the swimming pool. So he gave my parents permission to be relaxed, to not be so uptight. Because I think people are uptight with religion. They're sort of, you know, very rigid. And, you know, when they see a priest, I'm talking about. Uh, this lasted from the time I was 17 into my early 20s. I was sort of brainwashed. He destroyed my self-esteem. I loved seeing my parents happy and laugh. They always, they took them on trips and they would laugh. And I didn't want to ruin the relationship with my parents by me telling my parents this was going on. What would the priest say? Could the priest say that Michael's the one that's doing this and Michael's the sick one and Michael's trying to physically, sexually assault me? I mean, I, I thought they'd believe the priest before they would believe me. He gave me my sense, sense of worth. I became financially dependent on him because he found me a job at a church where he could monitor me. My self-esteem was based around how he would treat me. Sometimes he would tell me horrible things. He would, you know, give me gifts and boost me up. And then the next thing he's calling me stupid or you're unattractive or whatever, just to sort of control my emotions. So my sense of worth was based on how he would treat me. And, and that's, a, that's a tough thing when you, when one person has a sense of control. And I think you call, and, and, and other people may call that domestic violence. They stay in the relationship sometimes because they feel that that's how they should be treated because that's what their worth is. Things happened in my life during that time that reinforced me to stay there and made me feel as though God was actually punishing me. We had a house fire and the priest convinced my parents that he can stay at the rectory. Oh, Michael will have his own room, his own telephone. He'll be well taken care of at the rectory. Of course, this is putting the meat in the lion's den, I guess. So I felt trapped because now my parents have been dealing with a house fire. I'm going to try to come and talk to them about the abuse. They had that to deal with. I didn't want to add more to the situation. So I'm thinking in my mind, just unconsciously, um, as a teenager, that maybe God is punishing me in a way. At the church that the priest got me a job, there was a priest there where I finally had the courage to have a private conversation with him. I, I felt I was reinforced by God's punishment, so I kind of stayed in the situation, but there was a part of me that wanted to, to escape. So I thought talking to the priest, I could escape. So he met with me in his private office at the church. And in the book, I talk to him and tell him that Father Gregory is sexually abusing me and controlling me and, and so forth. And he ended up molesting me. Later on, he was the only one that admitted to it. So 
you know, you want to break free, but you just have no sense of self-worth and things are telling you that you need to stay in this situation. I, I just didn't know how to get away. I had thought about running away and I talk about that in the book where I write down a, a strategy to run away and this sort of plan that I wanted to run away. It ended up being a total of three priests. The first priest and the second priest, the, the one that I went into the office, they knew each other. Uh, let me backtrack because he had the priest first got me a job mowing lawns at the mausoleum cemetery ground. So I worked at the, and he could keep control. He knew exactly what time my job was. And to add to the story is that he was very neurotic and very controlling. So he would call me 10 times a day when I wasn't working to make sure I was where I was supposed to be. I remember one night, it must have been one, two o'clock at night. And we live in a, at the time it was a small town, you know, 30 some odd years ago, back in the eighties. I remember getting up and going to the bathroom, but I heard a car driving up the street and it was rare. You didn't see many cars driving at one, two in the morning. And I looked out the window, it was him driving past my house. It was very weird. I, he didn't see me because the lights were off. And I said to myself, how many times does he do this? So he was very neurotic. He would listen to my phone calls when I lived in the rectory during the fire. I, I could hear him pick up the phone or listen at the door. You know, we'd go to a restaurant. I describe in the book where he would order my food. He bought me clothes, the clothes that he felt I should wear. But when eventually I needed some independence and I bought a used car, he picked out the car. There was a sense of if I couldn't explain my time throughout the day, if there was a lapse in time, a half an hour, he would question where I was that half an hour. So it was not an easy life. I became a good liar. And I became sort of this person who, you know, when I started to sort of break away, I would lie, you know, just until I could finally break away. And this other priest, the third priest, I was actually, I did move to finally a city. I moved away. I finally broke away, but the first priest still controlled me from far away. He would say, I need, I need you to come this weekend, and I would go. So I was so brainwashed to do whatever he said, even when I was an hour drive away. So this priest, who was also friends with the first priest, not the second priest, wanted to stay over because he was going to be in the city meeting another friend of his for dinner. So he wanted to stay over, and I let him stay over, and I had a foldable cot. And next thing I know, he's climbing into bed with me and I froze. I didn't have the sense of self, the sense of worth, the sense of courage to, to do anything. I just, you know, my, like my friend, my best friend, who I eventually developed a friendship with later on in my 20s, he said, I think anybody probably could have molested you. That's how I was so brainwashed. I was so like, I felt I was worth nothing. And that took time to, to, to value who I was as a person when I had my sort of breakthrough. How did you start to get out of that? So here I was living in this apartment in the city about an hour away, and this priest was still controlling me. I mean, he would, he could sort of just say jump and I would jump. I secretly had a relationship. I had just started developing a relationship and I had to keep that secret. Okay, it's just, an, you know, an unattractive roommate, you know, and nothing you need to worry about. So I would sort of comfort the, the priest and make him feel it was just a roommate. And I would tell my partner, oh, that you don't want to, you know, because I used to go with the telephone privately in the bedroom back then. They had the long cords. And he would say, why are you always going in the bedroom? And I'd be like, I know you don't like religion. And we talk religion. So I was sort of always covering things up between the two. And that was a hard mask to put on, different masks to put on. And it was easier when my partner was working and I could take the call or the priest wasn't around so I could focus on him. So I sort of juggle. I was a good juggler. 
So he never knew that the priest was abusing me when I would go visit him because I told him I'm very religious and I, you know, I help out the priest and we're very good friends. And but anyways, um, the relationship had ended because some of the priest's behaviors I started to, to pick up. I was a little bit controlling in the relationship, this sense of where were you? And I mean, some of the behaviors that the priest had, I picked up and, I, and the, our relationship ended. And I think being with, if I had dated myself, I probably would have left myself as well. But I remember I was sitting in the apartment. I was very depressed over the end of the relationship. And he had, the priest had called. And there was something that he would do at every conversation at the end. And I would automatically do it like a robot. He would say, I love you. And for some reason at this specific moment, I couldn't get those words out. What I did get out was, all the rage and anger just came out. How could you do this to me? You destroyed my life. You controlled me for years. And, you know, and a lot of expletives and just a lot of rage and anger. And when I said, how could you do this to me? All he said on the phone was, because you let me. And I smashed the phone down, sat there, cried. And I, I knew I wouldn't kill myself. But I felt like I wanted to, if that makes any sense. I knew I wasn't going to go through it, but I didn't like the feeling of wanting to die. So I drove myself to uh, the main hospital there in the city and went to the psychiatric ward. And that's sort of how it sort of was the end for me. That was the last phone call I ever had with that priest. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. How did your family react? Because presumably sooner or later they had to find out what was going on. And were your fears kind of justified? Well, at that time when I moved to the city, maybe a year before that, the priest moved to another parish, which was about 45 minutes from my parents. But at least he was enough, far enough away from my parents where my parents didn't see him as much. Because before he'd come to dinner once or twice or even sometimes three times a week, he'd go to my parents. My parents took him on vacation to Florida, Disney World, and Washington, D.C., and to Canada. I went to Canada with him to see Pope John Paul. And months go by because I ended up deciding to call the diocese in, my, in the hometown that I grew up, the diocese of the church, and talk to the bishop and tell him, hey, this is going on. So I call and the secretary answers of the diocese. And I said, um, I'd like to talk to the bishop. And she wanted to know why. I said, because I was controlled sexually and molested by a priest and so forth. And she's like, I'll, she put me on hold and she comes back and she says, they will get back in touch. You have a nice day. And I wanted to say, have a nice day. Wow. I just told you I was molested by a priest. So they did call me back and they set up an appointment. I mean, the bishop didn't want to speak with me, but, or his assistant, which they call the auxiliary bishop. 
I couldn't see the bishop because maybe his throne was too difficult for him to get out of. I don't know. But so I went to see the auxiliary bishop at the diocese and I describe him coming into the room wearing his purple cap and his sash and this big gigantic ring and a big heavy cross. And he sits in this big chair and he's sort of trying to intimidate me sort of with his sense of power and his sense of strength. So when I sat down, he's like, hi, Michael. So what brings you here today? I'm like, oh God, it's it's Liberace, it's his doppelganger. And presumably he'd been briefed by the secretary or someone. He knew why you were there. Yeah, of course. Oh. They were sort of playing a sort of role, you know, this pontifical business-like role. I, it was just very strange to me that Demina wasn't like, you know, I'm sorry that you're coming here with this subject matter and I'd like to find out what's going on. But no, so I told him what was going on and he was sort of, I just said, you know, I'm being sexually abused and physically and emotionally abused. And he said, he was sort of like looking at me and, and I wasn't getting much of the response that I wanted. So then I decided to pull out the big guns and I told him exactly what was actually happening sexually. And that sort of changed his tune. I remember him gripping the, the armrest of the chair and turning his wrist, like to show me his big ring and getting kind of a little f- flustered. He, they basically wanted to sweep it under the rug. We'll get back to you. They did call me a week later. And he, and I had mentioned I was in therapy because I had gone to the, the, the psychiatric ward. And he just called me and said, um, quite simply, are you in therapy? And I said, yeah. Are you still in therapy? I said, yes. And he said, okay, that's great. I said, what are you going to do about the priest? He said, well, have a nice day. And he hung up. So I knew I wasn't getting anywhere. So the thing I had to do was then get a lawyer, which changes the dynamics of the situation because now in your head you're thinking okay this could go to trial my parents might be exposed in the newspaper and but I didn't care there was a sense of empowerment I had to find that within myself so I got a lawyer and that's how that sort of progressed and my parents my father was sort of kept out of the loop my mother only knew because the priest showed up at her house he had the nerve to bring a letter and saying Michael went to see a lawyer. And my mother, I had told her on the phone, I just need him to get some therapy. Because originally, that's all I wanted was him to get therapy, the auxiliary bishop to do something about it. And they did nothing. Once you get a lawyer involved, things change. Has there been any justice, for once of a better word? Have the people involved had any kind of consequences or anything like that at all? Yeah, um, it took a while. I mean, the priest was quickly removed. As a matter of fact, the bishop went to the specific church that he was at, and he ended up going in front of the parishioners and saying that, you know, Father Gregory is going to be on a leave of absence for a, a time being. And um, I think parishioners, one parishioner had made a comment in the newspaper that they saw the priest moving out his furniture and crying. The second priest ended up eventually passing away. He admitted to what he had done, but he didn't go to jail or anything. How how did how do you move on from that? How have you managed to rebuild your life after all of that? I do want to tell you this one story before I answer this. He had these three followers, four followers, a straight woman and her two sons, and this friend of this woman who was a gay man. When I started to try to break away from this priest, I ended up going to my first gay bar, but I had to do it secretly. I had to make sure that when the priest went to bed and I, he thought I was home, so I snuck out of the house and I went to the gay bar and I was underage. And it was like the most amazing feeling being around people that were me. Oh my God, two men kissing or women holding hands and people dancing and people being comfortable with being different and themselves, this living their authentic self. 
So I liked going to the gay bar. And then I went a second time. But the second time I went, that friend of the woman, Reggie was his name, the other gay friend, told the priest, I saw Michael at the gay bar. So the priest decided to do something very odd. Instead of confronting me, because he was neurotic, he was very afraid that I would leave him. He was afraid of me having any friends. He didn't want me having any friends. So he ended up having me go to Sandra's house with the, the two sons. And we went to a neighbor's empty basement, an empty cement basement. So we walked into the basement. I follow all of them into the basement. So you had Sandra, her two sons, Reggie, the gay man, the priest, and me. We walk into the basement. And they have it set up where there's four chairs, one chair facing the four chairs, and a podium, a plant stand. They put me on a mock trial. They wanted to see if I would tell the truth that I went to this gay bar. And there was a series of questions. Reggie played the judge, the priest, Gregory, Sandra, and her two sons were the jury. And I was sitting in front of all of them. And I talk about this whole thing that they created just to humiliate me. It's, it was the bizarrest thing in the world, the strangest thing. So I wanted to just give you an example of how, you know, the book talks about a lot of things where he would, you know, he locked me out of the, he locked me out of the rectory where I had to walk to my parents in the snow without a coat. He, he would peek through the window when I was showering and lots of craziness, great, just crazy stuff. So I needed to make sure the, uh, the listeners really understood that this was sort of a demented per priest. So how do I survive? I went back to college and I got my biological science degree, but I think I was in denial. And I did have a lot of anger, repressed anger. And my mother and my father are one. This generation is let's not talk about it. Oh, you're gay. Let's not talk about it. Oh, the priest abused you. Nobody needs to know. It's that kind of a thing. And I started to develop this sense of strength within me where I'll give you an example. I had gone to my cousin's wedding and I remember standing at the bar where they were serving drinks and three straight men were saying gay jokes. And I said, excuse me, she's my cousin. And you don't know if there's a gay person near you like myself and you're cracking gay jokes. And they were very apologetic. I felt as though educating people, at least bringing people aware was my point in life, was my, my attraction. So I became sort of this I guess you can say like Cher, the singer Cher said, I, don't, I owe nothing to nobody except for myself and God and everybody else can kiss my ass. And I felt that way. I, I owe nothing to no one. And I felt very empowered by that. So in my life, I lived that way. I became sort of this gay advocate. I tell people if I hear anything that's gay related, that's not appropriate. I try to educate people. But it took me a long time to understand that this affected me. And I think writing the book was in many ways cathartic because it released a lot of that heavy weight that I felt I was carrying. I wanted to be a voice for people that didn't, don't really have a voice. Do you know the average, and I learned this through SNAP. SNAP is, is an organization, it's global. It stands for Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. So, and they have, you know, crisis hotlines and resources to, to law firms. And I mean, they have all kinds of resources if people are abused and SNAP is a great organization. So I learned this from SNAP that the average person who comes forward with the abuse is in their middle 50s, 56 or so, 54, 56. So people really hold this. And that's why, you know, you don't hear a lot about it. People are abused when they're a child or a young adult. They don't come forward till they're in their 50s. And it's kind of a shame. And in the time that they've taken away from you, that you don't get back. I don't, I can't get back my late teens and my early 20s. I don't get that back. I don't get that 10 years back. I want to let you know there was some positive here. I think the last time the canon law was changed in the Catholic Church was around 1983, where it sort of put 
the bishops in charge of the abuse. But it wasn't good because the bishops would hide things and they would not deal with it. But last year, this pope, he ended up changing the canon law last December, where the bishops would be in trouble. They're, they're accountable for not reporting it. So they have to report the abuse or they can be punished within the church. So that was a big step forward because before the Vatican before used to see priests through a different lens. And the way I can describe it is that they would see the priest as he's human and he's made mistakes and we will give, put him on a sabbatical so he can reflect on what he's done. It was sort of like a little slap on the wrist. You are naughty and let's move on. And it was also added in there, not only children, but young adults. We can end it this way is that I've had wonderful feedback. If you were to say 100 people, 99 were very positive. They might say it was a really difficult read, but I'm glad that you're giving voice to someone who doesn't have one. Or I'm glad your story is coming out. And, but it gives me that energy that really helps me go forward. Absolutely. Good. I'm really pleased. So if people wanted to get a copy of it, what's it called and how do we get hold of it? Now here we go. Behind Sacred Walls, Michael Roberts. You can pretty much go on any online bookstore from Amazon to Walmart, but you can also go to my website that I created. It's called BehindSacredWalls.com. There you can not only find links to the books, and I also have links to different countries, but you can also find resources, hotlines, rape crisis centers, there's a lot of information for anybody who has been spiritually, physically, or emotionally abused, and those resources will help you. Lastly, I do want to mention a large portion of the profits will go to SNAP. I'm working with SNAP, and if you go to SNAP and you put my name in, you'll see that they, they did a donor profile on me. So a portion of the profits are going to SNAP organization. It's really admirable that you've managed to turn something so traumatic into something that's helping lots of other people and enabling these organizations to help even more people on top of that so uh you're amazing it's it, and i appreciate that i think it's a rippling effect when you throw a stone in the water it sort of creates ripples but the ripples go outwards and for me oh from hello dolly she says if you put manure you know lots of things grow so and i think that's what i want is that i want to have that sort of be a rippling effect where i'm touching other people and, and i may not ever know who i've touched but it, it's great it's, to be able to give back. Absolutely. That's amazing and really admirable. The last thing that I usually ask, and I think it's particularly relevant here, what advice would you have for someone for whom your story resonates, who finds themselves perhaps in a similar situation to you at some point in the, your story? I think the first thing is to make sure you're safe. And if you need to go to a friend's home, find somebody that you trust, somebody who you really, really trust, whether it's a friend or family member or a relative of somebody, that you can talk to them and tell them this is happening to me. Or you can call those resources that SNAP has hotlines that you can call. And even just to get some advice, try to find somebody first to talk to and maybe even call those 800 numbers and tell them that you're in a situation that you feel you can't get out. and Maybe reading my book, you can get it used and you can also get it on Kindle because it does disassembles religion in a certain way, but also shows the path that I took. You may learn from that path. I don't think going to the diocese necessarily is a good thing because I, I, I don't know if that's the first step. What I would do is have somebody to support you in your journey. I don't think going straight to the diocese would be because they may. I, I find that they could easily manipulate people. 
I guess it's a sense of lack of trust. And, and you probably can see why. But I would find somebody that can be the strength that you may not have. Be, find somebody who can, who can be there for you and support you and walk the journey with you what, is what I would do. I did it on my own. I had nobody. But I think it's really important to, to find somebody that you really trust and who will be there for you, even if it's an uncomfortable subject for them to deal with. You had to do it on your own and you're making it so that others don't have to. That's really admirable. And you're amazing, basically. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's funny because when I do get compliments and I've gotten some people who were also abused, I tell these people that you're a brave warrior because you're still here and you've made it. That to me is the first step. You're a brave warrior and find the strength, empower yourself and find the strength within yourself. And again, with others to, to fight the battle and to be a voice and, and to scream. I'm one who'll scream if I have to, for people to hear me. So, but anyways. And <laughs> Cher helped save you. And that's, that's awesome too. Yes, it's all we need is Cher. She'll be here when the world ends. It'll be croc cockroaches and Cher, I think. Yeah, she, she's she's beyond time, definitely. Uh, well, if I only could turn back time, I'd be all set. <laughs> My deepest thanks to Michael for being brave enough not only to speak so openly about his experiences, but to write a flipping book about it. You can find details of where to get a copy in the show notes. Until the next episode, take care. I love you. That was Probably True, the multi-award winning storytelling podcast created to remind all of our queer siblings that we are none of us alone. If you like what you heard and you want me to keep doing it, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash probably true. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.